Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, tonight, the four party leaders face off in the French language debate. A report from the Social Research and Planning Council has revealed some of the upfront and unseen expenses faced by students these days. And Donald Trump has called the recent impeachment proceedings against him a coup that is intended to take away the God-given rights of American citizens. The impeachment proceedings finally getting to him? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The first French language debate goes on, the leaders debate tonight. And uh, even if you are not a francophone, even if you don't speak French fluently, uh, it's worth watching uh, because, well, the latest polling we have from Nanos here is the uh, conservatives and liberals still deadlocked, almost even now, uh, percentage points, hundreds of percentage points separating them. The personal approval ratings for uh, Justin Trudeau and and, uh, and Scheer are just about even as well. So there's a lot to win and a lot to lose in this debate tonight. Joining us to analyze this is uh, Henry Jasek, professor of political science from McMaster University. Morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just fine, thank you. With the pol- the polls as close as they are right here, this this uh, this matters a lot. There's a lot on, on, on at stake here tonight, isn't there? Well, there certainly is. Quebec has the second highest number of MPs uh, in the country, and uh, it, it's the it's the home base of the Prime Minister of Justin Trudeau, and uh, he has to hold hold that home base and hold it well because he does have. You know he will have uh, losses in other parts of the of the country, so it's really critical. He has to protect and mobilize people in Quebec to support him. There's a lot of subplots involved in this thing tonight, and you just hit on, I guess, maybe the most important one. The Liberals do have a presence there; they did pretty well in the last right. federal election. Right. But it's it's mostly in the cities, isn't it? The cities, uh, and uh, the last time, I mean, he did have support out in a number of rural areas. That is the most fragile. He has to worry about the Bloc Québécois. Uh, the good news for him, as far as I could see, over the past week, the Bloc Québécois seems to have been weakening a bit. I mean, they are still strong. They're Actually, they for most of the, uh, pre, uh, the first three weeks of the election, they were running ahead of where they were four years ago. They now have drifted down uh, to about where they were uh, four years ago, so that, which gave them 10 seats at that point. Uh, but if Trudeau is weaker and they're a little bit stronger, they will probably pick up some, you know, a number of seats in the rural areas. It really depends. Trudeau has really got to try to get back those francophone voters in the rural areas that he had the last time. Analyze Andrew Shear's shot at this. I mean, he's going to be involved in the debate, of course. It's his second language. He does speak French, but, I mean, this is... It's it, that see, some people look at that as a bit of a disadvantage uh, that you got to be quick off the mark to ha- you know to be involved in the interplay that's going to go on here today. Uh, the conservatives are looking to make some gains. Do they have a shot at it in Quebec? Um, they've been running a pretty good campaign across the country. I think Shear's been running a pretty good campaign, uh, maybe better than a lot of people expected. Uh, the past week, there uh, the trend line. If you look at the past week or so, there's been a slight weakening of. Uh, Trudeau and the, and the Liberals, and there's been a slight strengthening of the uh, of the Conservatives. Now it's not big, but the trend, even though it's minor, is is in Shear's favor. I think he's been running a very careful uh, campaign. He seems to have stuff to say, you know, uh, every every day, and some of the some of the things he has to say, I think, will re- resonate with people, even though they may be on more not the top issues, such as. You know, where yesterday he did talk about foreign poli- his foreign policy goals, and I think you know they would probably be popular among a lot of people in the country, including people in Quebec. Now, 
foreign policy is not a major issue for most people when they go and vote, but it puts them on the right side of that issue for with a lot of people who might in the past have supported the liberals in Trudeau. So it's it's a careful campaign. What we have to watch with the with French, it is his second it is um, his second language. Everybody wants to know how his French is, but I think it's even a bit more nuanced than that. It's what kind of French does he speak? Uh, basically, when you go to Quebec, I mean, you, you people will want to know what you know. There's about three types of French. You can speak uh, Parisian French. Uh, you can speak French. They teach you in universities, or you can teach the French they speak in the small towns and rural areas of Quebec. And the, and if you can speak the type of French they speak in the small towns and rural areas of Quebec, you're going to have great luck. And that's exactly what happened uh, in 2011 with the big breakthrough that uh, J- uh, Jack Layton had, the second place with the NDP. He was, you know, at this point in the campaign, he didn't look like he was going to do much in Quebec, but essentially the French began to see the, the Francophone voters in the rural areas, small towns, said he sounds a lot like us. And what he did, and we didn't probably know it at the time too much, he in the years leading up to that 2011 campaign, he would sneak off for a few weeks, and he would live in a small village or town in the Chalabar region of Quebec, and he would speak French as French was spoken by people in those small towns and cities. And so that started to sink in the Quebec population. They said, he speaks just like us. He not only speaks French, he speaks Quebec French. He speaks our French. And so... That so that's an interesting question to see. What do the French commentators and the French pop, you know, people in Quebec, what do they say about the type of French that Sheer has? I don't know if he's done that sort of thing, uh, and what, how it will sound to them. But that's something to look, keep an eye on. Now I know some people are saying, "Come on, really? What kind of?" But it matters to those people, doesn't it? Absolutely, because listen, the people in small town in rural Quebec. Even though they're French, they don't really uh, relate to Parisian French. I mean, Paris is a world cosmopolitan. They, they don't, re- they don't relate to Montreal city. either, do they? Yeah, well, even Montreal. These are people who are, I mean, we have to remember the Quebec population, and this is the history. These are people who immigrated from France before the French Revolution. They carry a lot of values that, in fact, were, were, were prevalent in France at that time. And uh, it is, it, it, they're, they, they are really unaffected by the French Revolution. And I know that goes back a long way, but a lot of people don't realize that. And, and they, but also, the French language in Quebec and in the rural and small towns has evolved over the years. And I'm not sure exactly how it sounded, you know, 300 years ago, but it certainly does not sound like Parisian French. So, and, and then, so, so they're listening to people. Do the, do the leaders, if they speak French, do they, do they sound like me? Is it somebody who, you know... I could be comfortable speaking with uh, if they, they came to my town or village or what have you. Uh, Maxine Bernier, by the way, will not be in the debate tonight, uh, nor will Elizabeth May. They were not invited to uh, the French language debate, right. just so people aren't surprised when they uh, turn on the TV and see this. Henry, one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that the Quebec legislature has passed in years, of course, is Bill 21. Right. Uh, they've tried, uh, every one of the party leaders have tried to avoid any conversation about that. Right. It's got to come up tonight, and, and that's going to be a problem, I would think, for, well, for, Mr., for J- Justin Trudeau himself, because he obviously has expressed some opposition to it. He hasn't said he's going to do anything about it, but you've got to figure that the other leaders, especially uh, the, the bloc, are going to make it a big deal tonight. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it is. It is a problem that Justin has a stick handle. I mean, Justin is basically, while well, he is, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool Quebecer, his wife, his family's their first language they speak at home is French. When he's in public, he speaks French to his wife and his kids. And, and, and by the way, the Quebecers have noticed that. That was a very important point four years ago. Uh, unlike his father, who spoke English <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in public to his to his family. Justin is actually more of a Quebecer in that sense than his father was. But the the values, but, but Justin is clearly a cosmopolitan, modern, uh, you know, young, relatively young male. He, he is not, you know, he's very different from a lot of the pe- a lot of the people who live in, again, small cities, small town, uh, villages, farming areas of Quebec. And they, there is a difference in values between him and those people, uh, particularly on, on uh, human rights and, uh, we, you know, the things that are touched on in that bill. So he's got to walk very gingerly. And remember, this is his home base. He, he has to win as many seats as he can in Quebec if he, if he is to, uh, you know, form a government, even a minority government. What about the SNC-Lavalin thing? I mean, I know some people would rather that didn't happen at all. Uh, it's going to come up. It's come up a couple of times during the campaign. But uh, it's got to play in Quebec. I mean, that's obviously the home base for SNC-Lavalin. The polling right. I've seen on this, Henry, says actually the majority of Quebecers actually like the way that the prime minister handled that deal. Absolutely, because basically he cast it as, you know, here's, here's a person who is going to want a vigorous prosecution when there was choice of other types of prosecution, another type of prosecution, which was less vigorous. Uh, and and uh, they, they, they saw what essentially was a Quebec company being pu- wanting to be public, uh, punished by an attorney general who was from British Columbia uh, and supported by another you know, prominent uh, cabinet minister who's from Ontario, and that they seemed to be just totally disregarding the impact on uh, a Quebec company and a Quebec company that is known to you know employ a, a good number of people in Quebec. So that made it actually made Trudeau a hero there. It played very differently than it would have played in say urban Ontario, very differently than it would have played in British Columbia. Uh, one of the other subplots that we need to touch on, and, and you mentioned about Jack Layton's success a couple of elections ago in uh, in Quebec, is the demise of the NDP since then. Uh, obviously, they they. Had a, a not a very popular, not a very good election result last time. I've seen some polling uh, with this election, Henry, that says the NDP might get wiped out in Quebec in this election. It's possible. I mean, they, in some ways, uh, I mean, the, the sort of the average polling is say maybe they'll have one seat. <laughs> but uh, again, we'll have to see how they react to uh, to um, Singh, you know, to the NDP leader. To he's still a very unknown quality, I think, to the people in uh, Quebec. And uh, this is his one chance uh, uh, to really try to, you know, get them to form a somewhat more positive image of him. And, you know, uh, somehow if he can sneak uh, into some uh, comfort places for himself between Scheer and Trudeau, that would be great. He, I don't know what his strategy is going to be, but he's got to find a way to sort of look uh, different than the two of them uh, which, but which is comfortable to the uh, Quebec population, and that that's really his his his, his goal now. And also, what kind of French will he speak? Uh, I, I I you know again, it's another question. How will they interpret his, his French? Apparently, he is quite fluent in French, but what is it? Uh, how will it sound to Quebecers, particularly in the urban areas and in the seats he already holds? That that's going to be the important thing. 
This is uh, the first debate for uh, Justin Trudeau, of course. He, he skipped out on the McLeans and the City TV, city TV right. debates. Uh, so, And he's only got one more shot, and that's, of course, on Monday, the English language debate. Uh, does he have to score points here? I mean, you know, when you see how close these are right now, uh, let's just say basically just, you know, hundreds of percentage points apart right now. Right. Style style matters in these debates, but does, does substance really matter, too? Are people going to be listening, or are they going to be watching and see just how they present what they're talking about? Well, I think they will look at substance, and I think the number one issue for Quebecers is, uh, is, is essentially jobs and the economy. I mean, of course, there's the cultural issues we've already talked about, but at the end of the day, the jobs for especially for francophone Quebecers and uh, Quebecers in general, and, and, and what he's going to do for the economy, that, that's his strong suit. He has to essentially, you know, basically say that, you know, supporting me means the, you know, the best economic outcome for, for Quebec. I think that has to be his message, and he has to get that across and make it in a convincing way. And, and Andrew Shear obviously going to play those cards. Uh, uh, clearly, Mr. Shear, Mr. Singh, and, and the others uh, from the block, they're going to be they're going to be on the offensive. And it's uh, is I guess with the way most of these things t- tend to shake down, Henry, is it's uh, if, just pile on the guy who is the incumbent. Yeah, I certainly think they will, and they, but they have to be careful because you know they're both Shear and uh, Singh are from outside the province, and again, they don't want to look like uh, they're picking on uh, a Quebecer unfairly. So you can overplay your hand, and that, that's, I think, one thing that, you know, politicians, some politicians just make a mistake. They have a good hand, and they overplay it. And uh, so they may have good points. They, they need to remain positive. They re, if I were advising the other two, I'd say, listen, talk about the things that you really believe in and that really Quebecers are likely to be positive about. Be very careful about, you know, jumping on, on, on Trudeau too much in front of his hometown audience. Do you expect any surprises tonight, Henry? Like I say, the, most of them, I mean, Mr. Singh, of course, is fluent in French. Mr. Shear does speak French. Uh, we know the issues that are going to come up. Mr. Trudeau, obviously, is very fluent in, and as you say, yeah. small-town Quebecois French. But uh, we've, we've seen leaders or potential leaders trip and fall in some of these debates, and it has swung public support around one way or another. Even though it's French language, and maybe an awful lot of, maybe not a lot of Canadians are going to watch this from coast to coast, but there are francophone pockets all through the country right now, so you've got to figure that a lot of folks will be tuning in in places like uh, Manitoba, or certainly Ontario, and in, and in the, uh, the Maritime provinces. Absolutely, and one thing that happened interestingly, most people might not have noticed it, it was quite surprising, the leader of the Bloc Québécois was in... Uh, heavily French writings in Ontario, where he doesn't even have candidates. Uh, yes, and, and people in Quebec are know that they have a lot of defenders in terms of the French populations outside of Quebec. Uh, and so they'll be watching it, and it will affect them. And although these people no longer live in Quebec, and maybe they immigrated, and maybe their parents, their grandparents did, they still have an interest in making sure that the government is friendly to the Francophone population in Quebec. So and, and Quebec in general, so that it will certainly affect those people as well. So that's that's the thing they have to keep in mind. But in terms of surprises, I'm I'm I'm, I'm what I want to see is that does the the two opposition leaders who are there do they suddenly catch fire among uh, on some issue with the Quebec population tonight? That's what I want to know. Can they can they find that issue that allows them to? to start turning public opinion about around there because that's what that's that has to be what they go for they have to be riskier in that sense 
Trudeau has to essentially just solidify and make sure he keeps the uh, people he has. So I don't expect any surprises from Trudeau, but it's the other two leaders. If we do get a surprise, I think it will be from something they advocate positively to the French population. Well, I don't know what that would be, and I don't know if it's going to happen, but that's what I'm looking for. for. Well, as they used to say, it's must-watch TV. We'll see what happens. Henry, as always, thanks so much for this today. Great talking to you, Bill. You too. Henry Jason, of course, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, a fascinating report that uh, has been done by the uh, Social Planning Research Council here in this city has revealed some of the upfront and unseen expenses faced by students as they go to school in our city. How are these affecting students, especially low-income students? Well, the report talks about this in great detail. And uh, joining us to talk about the report is uh, Lindsay Bailey, who is vice uh, principal at uh, Glendale S- uh, Secondary School and also a lead member on the steering committee that uh, worked on that report. Uh, L- Lindsay, first of all, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Greatly appreciate it. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. This is a, 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 a story under a story. I mean, we talk about the cost of education, and invariably that I think the conversation immediately goes to uh, tuition fees, et cetera, et cetera. But what this report seems to do from the overview I've seen here, Lindsay, is talk about individual students and the impact that, that their financial situation, their family's financial situation, is impacting their education. You're absolutely right. And I think what, uh, what really was shining through in this report were those youth voices. And they were telling us some pretty compelling things about how they feel about coming to school every day. And I think when we hear about things like it takes a village, what really became evident in my work with the steering committee was that we need to get better at forming partnerships because it's not just about the cost of the school day. It's about the impact um, living in poverty is having on these youth even when they go home, uh, when they wake up each day. Um, so, so there's some, some great impacts for sure. But as a, as a teacher, and now, of course, as a, in the administration side of things as well, you hear those stories and you see some of those stories, but to, to most parents, I guess, and that even in elementary school that are dropping their kids off or high school, whatever the case might be, uh, it's not that they don't care, but, I mean, they're, they're just not made aware of an awful lot of the circumstances and the impact that it has on those students. You're right, and I, I think knowing the stories is, is the important part. So uh, what we heard from a lot of the youth um, in the focus groups were, you know, the, the responsibilities they have outside of school, waking up each day, for example, in, in single-parent families where they are the sole person responsible for getting younger siblings up and off to school and feeding them breakfast if, if breakfast is available. Um, those kinds of responsibilities make it hard. So even when students arrive at school at the start of the school day, they've already had quite quite a full day in terms of responsibilities that we wouldn't often imagine are, are tied to teens. Um, but that's the reality. And I, I think, you know, part of what they were telling us, um, what they were telling to us and, and speaking to was, we need to get better at asking questions. We need to get better at saying yes. We need to get better at knowing the stories and being willing to help because we can, um, but, we, but we need to kind of reach out and, and make sure that they know that we can and that we're willing to. How do you get those stories, and how do you build that bond, that trust, Lindsay, to get them to open up and talk about this? Oh, my gosh, that's a tough question. Relationships are key. They, they are absolutely at the heart of what we do, and it, they take time. Um, families need to trust that in sharing their stories, we will do something with them. Um, and, and I would say, you know, in, in forming those trusting relationships, they do take time. And, and, but I've also learned, too, that sometimes you just have to ask the questions. And you have to say it in a gentle enough a way so that 
They know that you're not just trying to figure them out. It's that you're looking to do something about it. Uh, and sometimes asking questions is hard, but, but asking those questions is an important first step. I remember a conversation I was having a couple of years ago now. This was a high school vice principal I was talking to at the time, uh, who was telling me a story about a student that was chronically late for first period almost every time and always getting into trouble and couldn't do detention, skipping out on detentions. until They finally sat down and said, what's the problem? He said, well, came from a single family. The mother had to go to work very early in the morning, and he essentially was the surrogate parent that had to get the other little ones ready and get them off to elementary school, then make his way to high school. And some days you just don't do that. Uh, circumstances that are, are, you know, first of all, unseen. I mean, most people would never know that. But once you sit down and take the time to hear, to hear that story, you, you understand exactly what kind of challenge they're facing. Exactly. And I think Simon Sinek speaks oftentimes about the power of why and knowing the why. And, and it's exactly what you're speaking to, Bill. It's, it's all about knowing the why and, and being, being willing to look at the data, for example, of an attendance record and knowing that there's likely a story attached to that. And, and then, as I said, being willing to sit down with families to say, look, I've got some concerns and we've got to figure this out together. What's going on? What's up and how can I help? And I think if you frame it that way, there's sometimes, oftentimes, more of a receptiveness and families are willing to trust you, knowing that you want to help. It's not about being punitive or, or issuing consequences. There's often a story and I want to know the story so I can help. Some of the stuff uh, in this report, though, Lindsay, is so elementary uh, when, when you hear some of the stories as, and things that maybe we just take for granted uh, as, as kids go off to school and we see them every morning, uh, you know, heading off to whatever institution it is they're going to. And one of the basic ones, of course, is, is getting dressed. I mean, clothing, if they even have clothing, uh, that can be somewhat problematic for people that are financially challenged. I agree. And, and I think so much of that is, is about stigma and about social pressures and um, and navigating those. And that's hard. That's hard for young people to kind of figure out. And, and you know, in, in sort of having conversations with the steering committee, we even discussed that, you know, sometimes people often think that schools that, you know, have uniforms, that that's a non-issue. But what we discovered is that there's also stigma with what some of those uniforms look like, the cleanliness of the uniforms. Um, w- one of the best pieces of feedback in this was, you know, a, a youth um, or perhaps some of the youth who were interviewed shared that wouldn't it be great if we had laundry facilities in our schools available to community members to kids so that they could launder things and then not have to worry about doing that in the evening when they're oftentimes tied up with other you know big responsibilities and it just sort of took a let's step back and look at that is that is it possible could we make it possible is there a way that we could kind of help and, and provide that service and Something so simple could have such a monumental impact. And, and again, something that would slip under the radar for most of us. But, I mean, if a situation like that, uh, a, a school uniform, whether it's a golf shirt or whatever the case might be, maybe it doesn't fit properly, uh, maybe it's a hand-me-down yeah. from somebody else, uh, or like you say, if it's dirty, there are self-esteem issues attached to that. You got it. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the other things that are mentioned here, too, and, and under some of the headings here. And one of the most basic ones, of course, are school supplies. I, I would imagine 90% of the people listening to our conversation right now just figure, yeah, well, the school board supply all that stuff. Everything's student. All they have to do is walk in the door and sit in the classroom, and it's all there for them. Not the case, necessarily. Yeah, and what we find oftentimes, I mean, I, we work with fabulous teachers who go above and beyond the call of duty, certainly. So many times we hear from our teachers that they're going out and, and paying for these supplies from their own pocket because they can see that kids are arriving to school every day without those necessities. And again, I'll go back to it's the importance of knowing the story. And if there's ever a need in our school, in schools and our board, I know for sure that administration teams are, are willing to jump in to provide those necessities, those, those key essential pieces so that 
they're not barriers for our kids. Because if not having a pencil is a barrier, I want to remove that barrier. And I can. It's just about knowing knowing that it exists. And, and sometimes if that's a barrier and a kid feels like they can't even ask, then that's a problem. And, and so, again, it's about knowing the why, asking tough questions, supplying things sometimes covertly and, you know, in, as, with a partnership with the family. Um, and I would say part of what I came to realize, too, was the importance of forming those partnerships with families. It's not just enough to, to give as much as we want to give. You know, if, if I have students in my school who need winter coats, I totally want to give them a winter coat. I don't want them to go without. But what I also want to know um, and be able to do is to connect with that family to say, in the event that your child ever needs a winter coat again, here's how you can deal with that. Because maybe they'll need a winter coat when they're no longer a student in my school. So it's about informing the parents of, of how to connect to those other resources beyond my school and to kind of through some, you know, empowerment, so to speak, be able to have them see that they can kind of leverage some of that own, um, of their own personal resources to, to seek the help if they, if they feel they need it, which is hard. It's well, certainly not easy. But, but it's an essential part of the job of, of being a teacher. That's why I always say teaching is not a job, it's a vocation. People that are dedicated to that, because you, you have to be the conduit to let them know how they can access some of the stuff that they might need. And in, as you're right, I do know teachers in some cases actually supply some of the stuff that they need because they know the students and the students' family can't afford to do that. But, right. but, but that's all part and parcel with the, with the education aspect of this. Yes. And I think, again, it, it goes back to exactly what I've said, I know, multiple times now, but knowing the story and being able to, to say, you know, if this is a barrier, let's remove the barrier. And then as a, as a next step, if this becomes a barrier again, let me give you some information, some knowledge on how you can access this if you need to. And there's a number of things that we could talk about here, and I know your time is limited. Uh, uh, school trips is another one that always comes to mind, and I know that's addressed here, and I know a number of the students that were interviewed uh, talked about that. I, I, school trips are a fabulous idea. They're a great way to expand education and to expose students to all sorts of things. But I can still remember, you know, when our kids were going to school, let's say, oh, yeah, we're going to such and such. Uh, I need 10 bucks, or I need 5 bucks, or I need, w- w- depending on the trip. Uh, some of them are a little more extravagant than that, and there are some families that just can't afford to do that. Yeah, and we value experiential learning, absolutely, but we know that if that is a barrier, we want to remove the barrier. And, and you know, again, we, we have ways and means to do that locally at the school level, um, but it's, we, we need to know that it's a barrier first, and sometimes that's tough. And again, it takes time to figure that out. Um, we work really carefully with our teachers in-house to really determine the value of that experiential learning opportunity, and oftentimes they're so incredibly valuable, but we carefully factor out all factors prior to granting approval for these field trips to happen, knowing often that there are costs associated with that. And what is the plan in the event that you have a student or some students to approach you and say, I really want to go, but I can't because money is a barrier for me and I, and I don't have the means to do it. Um, and, and so oftentimes the school will certainly jump in and, and ensure that we're still um, allowing that child to access that experience. But that's hard for families to ask. And, and again, it's about knowing the story and asking the tough, the, the tough questions sometimes, for sure. You've talked about some solutions, <clears throat> short-term and long-term solutions that are being done individually, some by teachers, some by you know, school administrations. And, and that's great to see that that's happening. But now that you've got all this data, 
how do you develop a broad-based uh, strategy for this uh, that, that is going to bring in other partners? Uh, you know, for transportation, maybe you'll be talking to the city about HSR yeah. passes, things of this nature. Who do you want to have th- this report in front of, and, and who, what kind of action are you looking for here? I think everybody. I think everybody in our city needs to see this because it is about partnerships. It's about making sure that, um, you, you know, and thinking about it takes a village. It does. Schools can't tackle this alone, and, and we need the city. We need external agencies and, and groups in our communities to, to jump on board. And, and I can't think of a better way other than um, really promoting the launch of this report uh, tomorrow at the Davy, David Braley Health Science Center. Um, we're, we're, we've, we have invited a, a number of people in our community to come so that we can start spreading the news on, on the impact we feel this report can have. And hopefully by word of mouth and, and by people spreading how powerful this can be in terms of impacting change, we're hoping that, you know, we certainly have some positive outcomes. Somewhat fitting that you're going to do it there. That's the previous site, of course, of the Hamilton Board of Education building, uh, but where, right. where the Brelly Center is now. Uh, and, and right across the road are some people at City Council that should be reading this report and understanding that the policy decisions that they make are going to have a positive impact, hopefully, on some of these, these challenges, really, that many of these families are facing. Right. And I think, you know, it's why the report is such a user-friendly guide. Not only do we have the youth voices that sort of informed all of this, we have what we've heard, what would help, and the specific recommendations. And those recommendations are sort of at a local level, and then certainly what we're hoping um, can be changed at, at much higher levels. And, and we know that those things take time. We understand that. We know that they take um, people in positions of power to, to make the change and to want the change. And I think, you know, we have to continue to operate in the best interest of kids, and that's certainly what I'll continue to do at a very local level. Well, hopefully the report's going to act as a catalyst for those conversations, not just among people at the boards and and, and when the schools themselves, but as you say, the greater community, because as you say, the more people that are involved in the solutions here, the the easier this is going to be for for everybody involved. You got it. And And I think... I would be remiss if I didn't just say, Bill, if I can, we really have to thank the Hamilton Community Foundation for funding this project. Mm-hmm. Um, so appreciative of their efforts to, to support us with this. And we're hoping for some really great things, for sure. I think we all are. Lindsay, uh, congratulations on this uh, and, and on your uh, contribution to this, too, and, and to everybody involved in this. And we'll see just what kind of a reception uh, this gets over the next couple of days. But thank you for the time today. Good talking with you. You as well. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's becoming more and more bizarre, the uh, the news coming out of Washington over the last little while. U.S. President Donald Trump uh, is now calling the recent impeachment proceedings against him a coup that is intended to take away the God-given rights of American citizens. As you might have known, uh, Trump, of course, tweets on a consistent basis. Uh, It says, as I learn more and more each day, I'm coming to the conclusion that what is taking place is not an impeachment. It is a coup intended to take away the power of the people, their vote, their freedoms, their Second Amendment, religion, military border wall, and their God-given rights as citizens of the United States of America. That was a Trump Trump tweet from uh, just a little while ago. Is it resonating? Uh, The numbers seem to indicate that more and more people seem to be on side with at least an impeachment investigation. Joining us to talk about this is Brian J. Karam, who is the executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers, White House reporter for the Playboy, and also a political analyst on uh, CNN. Brian, first of all, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, glad to be here. This is, this is a very fluid situation uh, with the tweets that are coming from the White House and, and the accusations, counter-accusations that are going first. Give, give me your read on, on what's going on here and, and who's winning this, this war of words. <laughs> 
it's chaos in a blender. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, there's no other way to look at it. Donald Trump is doing what Donald Trump does. I'm tired of his tweets, having covered this presidency for two and a half years. There's nothing that he says that's accurate. There's nothing that the administration says that's accurate. You've got Pompeo. You've got the vice president. Uh, you've, you've got Donald Trump. You've got William Barr all wrapped up in this. And it's going to be a very long, laborious process. The title that came to mind, and, and I'm old enough to remember, I was just getting into this business when Watergate was happening, uh, and of course yep. the subsequent book from Bob Woodward and, and, and Carl Bernstein was called All the President's Man. This sounds like the the redux of that. I mean, this is not just about Trump anymore, is it? No, it's all the president's wimps. These are people who could not get a job elsewhere. And these are people who are actually very, very good at being conniving, but not very good about doing their job. And I think it's, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost with this particular episode, but there have been so many uh, that have gone on in this administration that to single out one is is like, you know, picking one sand on a beach, one pebble of sand on the beach. Brian, how do you differentiate? I mean, I, I, I think we all have a pretty good idea of, of the, the caliber of stuff that, that Trump puts out here on a pretty consistent basis. But but there still apparently is a base out there that believes everything this guy says, everything that Bill Barr says, everything that Mike Pompeo says. That was the same you mentioned Nixon. Uh, that was the same with Nixon, too. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, Nixon had very favorable ratings as the impeachment inquiry began. It was only after Alexander, but and remember, John Dean was thought of as as a liar. Yep. Trump, uh, Trump, Nixon called him a liar. Then Alexander Butterfield came out and said, "Listen, there are tapes." And at that point in time, uh, the American public, for the most part, turned against uh, Nixon, and he had to resign. And I see the beginnings of that already. There are members of Congress and the Senate on, in the GOP who have had enough of this. And uh, Trump's calling it a coup when it's actually, this is prescribed in the, uh, this is a constitutional measure. This is prescribed under the Constitution. It's not a coup. And they did it to Clinton, and they did it to Nixon, and they did it to Johnson. It, it is available in our laws to do this. So that tweet and the tweet where he actually encouraged a civil war is one that has begun to drive some of the members of the GOP away from him, and right now, if there were a vote for it, they could indict him in the House. There will probably be an impeachment. Whether or not there will be a conviction in the Senate is anyone's guess, but at this point in time, there are some uh, Republicans who say they will vote for that. So it, it gets more interesting by the day, and Trump does himself a disservice every time he opens his mouth, and that's typical of Donald Trump. I know that there's been a lot of comparisons between Watergate and this, because there are, as you mentioned, some very close similarities here. Uh, but the tapes seem to be the, 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 the tipping point back in those days. Uh, and in, I guess the question an awful lot of people, as I watch a lot of the reporting on this over the last couple of days, Brian, on CNN and MSNBC and, and CBS, every place now, of course, are, are talking about this. Are we going to reach a tipping point there where even some of the most ardent Republican supporters in, in, in the Congress and the Senate are going to say, that's it, I'm out of here. I, I can't do this anymore. I think, you know, so, yeah, I think there are, that that will happen. Um, the question is whether or not it's enough to have him uh, removed from office. And that's the question that still can't be answered because they do not 
or have not, uh, th- this process is only beginning. So we do not have a uh, real sense of what information is out there and what evidence the Democrats will will get to press Donald Trump. But, yeah, I think that you eventually will see uh, people vote against him in the GOP because they've just had enough of him. What about you talked about the information and the data and and the evidence that's that's going to be necessary for to move people like this? Uh, it, my recollection is that an awful lot of the stuff that was requested by the Congress back in the days of Watergate from Sam Irvin's committee, uh, they got it. I mean, they weren't these monumental court battles that seem to be happening. Essentially, the White House and the Trump White House, especially here, is just not playing ball with these guys at all. And simply, first of all, they, the people that are being called are not showing up. Uh, there's no presentation of documents like this. This, if, if they're going to go through the courts, this thing could go on forever. Yeah, well, that's it is, <laughs> and it will. Um, and that's, I don't imagine that Donald Trump will go gentle into that good night. Richard Nixon did not either. He thought that process was ongoing for a couple of years. And that this process is just getting started. I imagine that Trump will fight. But here's the thing. Now that it's an official impeachment inquiry, that gives the uh, Congress additional powers to secure information that they didn't have when it was just an informal inquiry. And like I said, it at the end of the day, it's Trump's tweets and Trump's own big mouth that's going to do him in. And I think that, you know, the Democrats are wise to keep their mouth shut and just let Trump continue to shoot himself in the foot and, and in other places in his anatomy. The strange thing about this is is his denial of the obvious, and I guess the most blatant example of that is, is the White House uh, document that was released last week about the phone call. And of course, it's not a transcript. I think they, we had to be quite clear about that. It's 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 just what right. they've given out so far. There may well be more to that phone call than we even know about at this stage. But what's well, there? there, is. What, there what, is. what what's there, Brian? Is pretty damning, and yet Trump says no, it's not. That Trump says it was a perfect phone call because he's delusional. I mean, he admits that there's a quid pro quo in the the quote-unquote transcript that they provided. And yes, you're correct, but see, here's the thing. This White House never tells the truth. They told us that that was a transcript when they released it, but on the document itself, it says it's not a transcript. Trump says it, it was a perfect phone call and that this should answer all the questions, but it was four or five pages condensation of a 30 minute phone call. So. We're not getting the truth. We never have gotten the truth from this president or anyone in his administration. And it's, it's criminal. It's, and we'll see what the Congress does to put a stop to it. Because right now, if the election were held today, Trump might well be reelected. Yeah, that's that's a pretty scary thought. Uh, I got to ask you about that element about what the Democrats are doing and how they're reacting. And obviously, uh, the major players here are a shift, obviously, from uh, the the committee that's actually going to do this and start the investigation. Nancy Pelosi, who pretty much gave it their blessing, S- very quiet though, uh, and, and noticeably quiet by and and maybe absent uh, because of their their solitude here. Are the other Democratic uh, people that are running for president, which I think is down to about nineteen or twenty now, it's hard to track them from day to day should 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 they be jumping in here baker's dozen (laughs) yeah pretty much should should they be jumping in here they seem to be staying away and basically letting biden twist in the wind about this all by himself well i've often said that you know democrats are great about snatching uh, defeat out of the jaws of victory 
and uh, I would I would say in this case they continue to the only thing worse than a Republican is a Democrat. The, Demo, the Republicans are going to hold their nose probably at this point and vote for Donald Trump though they don't like him, and the Democrats are going to shoot each other in the foot trying to find the perfect candidate they'll never find. And the farther to the left they go, the more it encourages Donald Trump supporters to reelect him. I mean. There are millions of people in this country who do not want to vote for Donald Trump, who did the first time. But they are never going to vote for a candidate who says, take away the guns and reparations for civil war. So, you know, I, I asked every one of the Democratic candidates at the last debate after Beto O'Rourke said that, do they think they can beat Donald Trump on that issue? And they did not want to answer that question. They uh, They have... They are not grasping why Donald Trump was elected the first time, and they do not know how to beat him this time. And, and by the way, I, I go back to that tw- tweet that we began our conversation with. Uh, here he is talking about uh, what he now calls a coup. But in the tweet, as, as you, we just heard, Brian, he mentions, uh, he mentions the border wall, the military, the religion, uh, the guns, the Second Amendment, which has got nothing at all to do with the, the impeachment aspects of, of this t- conversation. But he's, no, he's throwing no, no. it all in there, trying to hit every base, uh, every element of his base, really. Yeah, he's hitting his, he's, he's basically, that's his, you know, the best of album. He, all his greatest hits, he plays every day. With that in mind, and him trying to solidify that base, and, and some of those evangelicals, and like you say, uh, the, the NRA members are, are probably going to stick with this guy no matter what. Uh, the way this is starting to shape up right now, uh, it, it looks to me anyway, as if the perfect candidate that Trump would love to run against is Elizabeth Warren, not Joe Biden. Oh, of course. He'd love to have Elizabeth Warren. He'd kick her butt. Uh, because she's perceived as a socialist and a and a far left and all those swing votes would not vote for her but here's the caveat to that if in fact between now and then the economy tanks uh all bets are off what are the indications because we've heard about some some elements of the economy that are starting to show some cracks in it right now uh and the speculation seems to be not if there's going to be a downturn but when it's going to happen um, that, there were uh, economic indicators came out yesterday, and uh, the Dow plunged 350 points, and Trump blamed the Fed for that. There's only so much blame that he can pass around. He still wants to blame Obama, and he's been in office two and a half, going on three years. <clears throat> At some point in time, you wear out your welcome with that excuse. When people are putting less food on the plate and can't pay their bills, uh, suddenly uh, blaming Obama... Uh, is not going to solve the problem. So we'll see. Nobody prays for a bad economy. God knows I'm not, but that is going to be a telling point in the election, maybe more so than who runs as a Democrat. If the economy tanks, all bets are off with Trump. That's the the James Carville factor, I guess. And it worked then, and it certainly would work in any election, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If if you... Go ahead. Go ahead. If, I'm sorry. Okay. If you were advising no. Adam Schiff, once this thing gets rolling, this and, and they start this impeachment inquiry, uh, who's the first guy you'd like to have sitting in front of this committee? I, I got to figure it's got to be. Well, yeah, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. But I, I got to think right now that it'd be, have to be Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I think Giuliani would be good. Pompeo would be good. Um, the secret, uh, 
Secretary of State Pompeo would be good. Uh, Attorney General William Barr would be good. Uh, Vice President Pence would be good. Giuliani would be good. And Trump would be the get. But I don't know if they'll get any of them except maybe Giuliani. And just let him talk. Yeah, oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, the irony of Rudy Giuliani is he made his, he made his bones, as it were, uh, convicting um, mobsters using the RICO Act, and the RICO Act may well be used against him. There's another element that doesn't get a whole lot of mention here, but I, I think it's probably still germane, and I'm sure there's some people in the White House that are still focused on this, is, is while all this is going on, and, and the Mueller report seems to have faded into the distant past now, I guess, in many people's minds, uh, probably because most Americans didn't read it. I think most people in Congress didn't read it either. But with this new thing with Ukraine that's going on right now, if Trump were to lose this election, uh, with the investigation that's going on in the Southern District of New York right now, he he is liable to be charged with a, a possible offenses uh, from that investigation. Uh, if, if you can't charge a sitting president, you can certainly charge a defeated president. Yeah, I think Donald Trump is basically running for re-election, so he stays out of jail. But... Um I mean, I've had numerous sources in the White House, well, three, who said he doesn't really want to run for re-election. And I said, well, he's got to run for re-election. It's the only thing that's going to keep him from being indicted. So if he, if he is defeated or removed from office, then he has definitely opened uh, himself up for prosecution, and he probably will be indicted. If you've read the Mueller report, and I've read it three times, mm -hmm. there's at least 10 cases of obstruction of justice in there, and then that's outside of what the Southern District of New York has going on. So he's, his future doesn't look that bright. I, there's some speculation on social media, Brian, that I wanted to get your comment on as well, that, that if the, the news starts to tighten around Trump right now, that he will in some way, shape, or form try to cancel the 2020 election. Is, is that within his power to do? <laughs> no. And uh, I, <laughs> that rumor it should be put to rest quickly because i don't think even the staunchest well well i say this there might be five or ten percent of the people out there would go donald trump you gotta take him but i think in reality that's that is madness and that is not what this country is about and there's no way constitutionally he could do it i mean when you look at uh, you know the people he surrounded himself with bill barr obviously as the attorney general uh, and that's somewhat problematic because the Department of Justice should play a key role in this, but clearly yeah, they're playing defense for Trump in situations like this. Uh, and I think a lot of people are looking at the fact that the Supreme Court is obviously tilted to the right now because of the last two appointees, uh, the Trump appointees to this. But but even John Roberts, the Chief Justice, has shown at times that, that that he may be a conservative, but that doesn't necessarily mean he always sides with a, with a Republican president. Well, he may be a conservative. That doesn't mean he's going to side with Trump. Trump is not a conservative. He's not a traditional uh, Republican conservative. Donald Trump is his own entity, and he's out there for one person, Donald Trump. And that's, um, I, I think, John Roberts, being the Supreme Court justice and the chief justice, is a little smarter than Donald Trump and, and, sees, and hopefully will continue to put country ahead of party. Because once you're a, a Supreme Court justice, it's not supposed to be about a party. It's supposed to be about the country. Well, it's fascinating to watch, as I say, as a student of politics and, and a fascination to see what's going on in U.S. politics, because obviously it has an impact of not just in the States, but right around the world. Brian, I always enjoy your reporting and, and your commentaries on this, and it was a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Well, 
Thank you. I'd, I'd like to say one real quick thing. Yeah. Uh, listen to the podcast at justaskthequestion.com. And then today is the one-year anniversary of the death of Jamal Khashoggi, and I hope everyone remembers that uh, a free press is not free and that there are people who have given their lives, and uh, we should remember those who have. I'll check that out as soon as I get off the air today. Brian, thanks as always. I hope we can talk again soon. Anytime. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.